Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and with me in the studio is Niklas Savos. How are you doing? I'm great today. I had a weekend full of uh, celebrations. My daughter turned two, so I, I actually feel great to be back, back working again. Yeah, that's good after some releasing some new equity analyst reports last week, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Busy weeks. And today we are thrilled to talk with uh, Daniel Chang, an investment officer at the Swedish serial acquirer Technion, and the author of An Investment Thinking Toolbox, published in January 2021. Uh, why have we chosen this book? We, we think that taking a multidisciplinary approach to investing is the way to go. And uh, while there are a lot of books on the subject, uh, few are as practical as this one. I definitely agree. We usually ask our guests about their most common biases and how they handle them practically. And this is what this whole book is about. So that's why I really like it. And more specifically, Daniel also writes that he hopes that the tools in the book can help us become better thinkers, better decision makers and better investors. So that's all aligned with our thinking and I also really like the personal approach, like he includes so many examples of his discussions with his partner and various investment mistakes. And so it's very, very candid. So what is an investment thinking toolbox about? So Shang brings up 11 mental models from the importance of having a circle competence, which is the first chapter. Then uh, he goes on with reasoning from first principles, second level thinking, unknown unknowns, inverting, uh, anchoring, survivorship bias, probabilistic thinking, Occam's razor, confirmation bias, and lastly, but one of the most important ones, risk, which we will get into. Daniel has a, a special uh, definition of, of that. Um, and the structure of the book is uh, is that he starts with a, with an introduction to the model, and that's not uh, always investing related, but then he goes on to present the implications for investors, his own experience from failing and prospering from using the model, as well as some practical advice. The book is really a nice toolbox. Which is your favorite part of it? I mean, I, I think, uh, I mean, I usually re- read a book like this um, to and, and try to take with me some practical advice. And uh, I actually rewrote my own uh, investing rules a bit after reading the book, which is a testament to, I mean, how good I think it is. So um, I don't necessarily have a specific example. I think we will get into one on on anchoring uh, with an example with Chris Saka, which I think was unbelievable. Yeah, I really liked the unknown unknowns, but I also, yeah, there's many good parts of this book and very well worth reading. Uh, From the framework of the quality rating, uh, what will we focus on today? I mean, we we have uh, the quality rating structure around people, business and financials. And um, I would say this is more, I mean, of of having a, a, I mean, that is more for business analysis to understand the quality of the the people in a business, the business itself, and I mean, how it shows up in the financials. But this is more on how to become a better investor, in my view. And uh, I mean, the focus is to become a better thinker and then a a better decision maker. Uh, So, I mean, it's always important to, to understand your own flaws to avoid traps. So let's go. Here comes our conversation with Daniel Chang about an investment thinking toolbox. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Uh, It's Monday morning when we record this. And uh, how was your weekend? Hi. 
thank you. Thank you very much for letting me letting me in here. <laughs> My weekend was great. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking, actually, doing very little um, other activities. Uh, I felt that I've had a quite a long period while I've been doing uh, a lot based on previous thinking. So now this was a little bit of a thinking weekend, uh, which was great. So I feel very energized and ready for a new week. How do you do that practically? Uh, I do quite a lot of physical activity. Uh, so some running, uh, some uh, time spent at the gym. And uh, also I just spend time walking around in the forest uh, together with my partner and talk and think about things and try to be as far away from electronics and um, other uh, disturbances as possible. Sounds like a really nice weekend. It was indeed. Uh, and um, I mean, you wrote um, this book, An Investment Thinking Toolbox, um, in um, 2020. And yes. Yeah, and I was thinking it, it takes a lot of effort to, to write a book and you managed to do it while having a full-time job and also in the middle of, of a global pandemic. Um, I want to ask you, how, why did you decide to write the book in the first place? I think the main reason for me was that it gave me time to think and reflect about life and investing and other things as well. Uh, and I mean, it was quite of a stressful time because nobody really knew where we were heading. I mean, were we even going to survive as a, as a human species? Uh, and how would life look like after the pandemic? Um, but it also gave me time to think about what has happened during the last, say, decades or even millennia uh, as a human species. And um, we have been through a lot. And just naming a few things such as the world wars or like the Spanish flu and uh, the Cold War and uh, before that a lot of other catast- catastrophes as well. And uh, somehow we have managed to pull through and survive all that. And this gave me calm to think about the longer perspective. And I imagine people being in all of those crises felt and thought that this is going to be the end of the world. Uh, But as some very smart wise man said uh, once, um, we shall overcome, this too shall pass. So I think I've spent a lot of time reading. I love to read, as you know, and uh, hopefully I've learned something from reading all of those things. But in the very hectic day-to-day life, um, I don't think that I spend enough time reflecting on what I have read have actually been incorporated into something practical and usable. So this became a time for me to actually just sit down, think about my investing life, so to say, and what I have done okay, and uh, what I can improve more on, and just calmly look back, and being as transparent and rational as I possibly could. Yeah, it's very impressive to to read how yeah, how rational and calm your, your writing is. And how long have you been an investor, for those who don't know? So I actually started becoming an investor when I was 18 years old. Um, I know that a lot of investors started maybe when they were uh, three, four, five years old. Uh, I actually didn't know what a stock was until I started studying economics uh, when I was 18. 
And it was during that time where I found out about uh, this very famous investor, uh, Warren Buffett, who at that time already was quite an old and uh, very well-known uh, investor, of course. And uh, the whole concept of being able to solve riddles, trying to learn more about the world and just uh, satisfy the natural curiosity. And sometimes, at least, uh, if one is right, one could also make some money uh, during that adventure, which was something that I really liked. Uh, what did that come from, like that kind of drive? I think the drive somehow came from... I've, I've always liked solving riddles. I've always liked playing computer games, strategy games. Uh, I've always, maybe not always, but for some time always uh, have liked uh, betting as well. Just trying to solve things that were maybe not always uh, so obvious. And investing somehow felt like the ultimate piece in that puzzle uh, because one could never get fully educated and there was always more to be learned and it was so dynamic. Um, And I think that I've been lucky that I've always been a very curious person and that was just a very good fit for me. I think we will get into confirmation bias a bit later, but I think, I mean, one one thing I got back to from, from reading the book was that, I mean, I confirmed a lot of what I've been thinking myself, but but you articulated in a much better way than, than I could. Um, so going back a bit more to the book, um, the title of the book is An Investment Thinking Toolbox, with the subtitle being Mental Models for Better Investment Decisions. And I wanted you to, I mean, if you could tell our listeners what a mental model actually is. For me, a mental model is kind of like a simplification of how the world works, or at least a piece of the world. I mean, the world is a very complex uh, place, and it would be impossible to understand all the aspects, or even all the aspects within a certain field. So one could think about a mental model just like using Google Maps, like an application to show how the world looks uh, from a point of geography in this case. And uh, it would, for most purposes, work quite well if you want to go from A to B. But sometimes, as you probably have experienced, though it doesn't work perfectly, maybe the road is blocked, maybe there's construction work. And a mental model for me is is quite similar, uh, where you can take something quite complex and boil it down to something that is much more manageable, works quite often, uh, but not always. But it's a very good, at least for me, a guiding principle for how to think about things without uh, having the need of being Albert Einstein. Um, And uh, thought leaders such as Charlie Munger, Peter Bevelin, Nassim Taleb and Shane Parrish from the Knowledge Project have helped us all appreciate the value of using such models uh, to improve our thinking capabilities and and ultimately decision making. Uh, And I think you could make the case that there are hundreds or or maybe thousands of, of mental models, but you managed to boil it down to 11. Uh, how did you do that? That was indeed a very, very tricky <laughs> exercise for me. Um, I, I started, if I just rewind a little bit, I started out with writing down uh, 
a lot or most uh, of the painful experiences that I've had with investing, which became quite a long list. Um, and from there, I tried to remember based on the notes that I had or sometimes some mental notes on what did I not do well? Uh, what did I forget? What did I uh, forego? And based on that, in the next step, I uh, tried to figure out, you know, what are similarities? Are there any mental models that uh, I should have used or didn't apply properly? So that resulted in maybe, I don't remember, but maybe 40, 50 uh, mental models, which is far too many to actually write about, uh, even to read about. And more importantly, I mean, that's too many to have as a rule to do any practical things with. So I kind of decided in my head that I want to have 11 chapters just because uh, I think a lot about risk and chapter 11 is something I think about quite often. Um, so I started to just you know crossing off one after another, that the ones that are maybe less important or some of them might have been quite similar which in the end, after killing, say, 30, 40 of them, I ended up with 11. Uh, but that was a very painful process because obviously it felt like they were all important to me, but not all were as important. So you use the Occam's razor that you take up as, as one of the models to, to simplify, but yes. not oversimplify. Yes, yeah. exactly. Nice. I really like the title, uh, An Investment Thinking Toolbook. It's not an investment toolbox and it's not an investment guidebook or a handbook or so it's really this toolbox and it's a lot about thinking and you start out the book with a concept called circle of competence yep. which you illustrate very well with this one big circle labeled what you think you know and within that a smaller circle named what you know and uh, i think it's a great concept and something you always should have in the back of your mind as you're investing and is this something I actually know? And you bring out some good examples. But it's also very hard to be sure, like, what do I actually know? And, and that that is not something that I think I know. So, so what's your view on the boundaries of, of circle of competence? Uh, I mean, the boundaries are really tricky bastards. Um, <laughs> am I allowed to say that? Yes. Yeah, great. Uh, I mean, it's easy to see what things are far outside. For me, there would be pharma companies, biotech, uh, high-tech software programming, etc. That's easy for me to understand that it's far away. But uh, the blurred line is kind of like a disco light almost. Uh, it's pulsating and it's moving and it's depending on, among other things, like my self-confidence, uh, which is obviously bad. Um, so sometimes when I'm in a good mood uh, or when I've done some investments that are have played out very well and the line kind of moves outwards uh, and the opposite can happen in the other direction so the boundary is just so tricky to nail down uh, where it is and i've made a mistake so many times of thinking that it was within my boundary uh, where it actually wasn't so i think one answer to the boundary question which might or might not be helpful is to, if one needs to think about if this is or is not within the boundary, just let it go and choose something that you know for sure is within. Um, that has 
been a guiding principle that has been helping me quite a lot. Yeah, that's good advice to invert it that way. But the hard part is when you're like, as you say, you are a curious person. So you want to know things, you want to learn about new topics and you're always interested. So do you like actively try to limit yourself from that? Yeah, uh, I actually try to do that a little bit. Uh, It is quite boring and there there are uh, a number of companies, say 50 or so that I've been following for uh, quite a long time, many years and where I have notes that prove that I have at least put some thought into it, them and sometimes have been more right than wrong. Uh, and those I try to keep and uh, keep myself updated regarding. Um, and as you say, I am quite curious. So every now and then, uh, every day almost, I would say, I find something new, a new company or a company that I haven't thought about for a while and try to learn something more about it. And naturally, I try to not do anything with these companies because I know that I'm a novice, I'm an amateur when it comes to uh, the knowledge and the valuation of them. Um, but I have a belief that sooner or later, maybe after some years, maybe after a decade, maybe for uh, never, uh, some of them might move into uh, the circle of companies within the boundaries. But I absolutely do not stress that in any way. That's probably good to be cautious (laughs) when you're going that way. So another chapter that I really like is the unknown unknowns. And that is very related to the knowledge about what we know and what we don't know. Uh, So so for those who don't know, what is unknown unknowns? (laughs) Uh, Unknown unknowns are a very interesting concept. It's kind of like... Uh, the bottom part of an uh, iceberg. Uh, Quite often, I feel at least, that there are things that just seem so easy that I figured out what the direction will be. Uh, I understand the dynamics. It's something that I quite often feel. And the tricky thing here is that too often when I feel that, it's just because that I do not understand it enough. I do not understand the different complexities and therefore it sounds so easy. Uh, And those things that I do not know are the unknown unknowns. Things that I don't know and that I didn't even know that I didn't know. (laughs) Uh, That's tricky to say, uh, but it's something that you see in everyday life quite often uh, when you see different professions try to tell other professions how to do their job as an example um, I guess everyone can relate to that like uh, everyone probably have thoughts about how should the police do their job better or how should the school and teachers do their work better and sometimes it feels crystal clear and sometimes you might be right uh, but quite often in those cases I feel that it's probably because one does not understand the complexities that lie behind it. So that's the long explanation for how I think about the unknown unknowns. Yeah, I think you write very well in the book also with the example of when you face something that is unknown to you, you might think you know more than you do. Yeah. Uh, and then you're at risk of that. And the other, like on the other side of unknown unknowns is known knowns, just to contrast a bit. Uh, so so people understand that that is uh, basically facts that you know for sure that I know. Yes. And then you also have two other parts in that model, 
which are unknown knowns and known unknowns. Maybe go into shortly about what that is. Yeah, so uh, I guess it becomes a little bit easier if you have the picture in front of you. Um, yeah, but in the book is very well. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when it comes to known unknowns, uh, those are things that you actually know that you have no clue about. Um, for example, there might be companies such as uh, Netflix where subscriber growth is very important. And most probably uh, you do not know the exact number what it's going to be in the next quarter or the next year. So that's uh, a known unknown. Uh, there, the fourth quadrant in this matrix uh, is something uh, that I call unknown knowns or what uh, you could also call uh, implicit knowledge. It's things that you actually know about but that you haven't really been able to able to articulate. Sometimes it's it can be important knowledge, uh, and in those cases, uh, it's interesting to find different ways to ask questions. You can bring that up to the surface of uh, your attention, uh, so you can factor it in in the valuation. And sometimes it's just maybe not as important. Um, maybe you know the taste of a McDonald's hamburger, uh, that could be implicit knowledge, but maybe that doesn't really matter in the revaluation. Um, so that's the four quadrants that I try to think about. And out of those four, obviously, you would like to have as much as possible that makes sense uh, into the known knowns. It's important, obviously, to know, I feel, um, what you do not know. So you can uh, try to look for those answers or uh, maybe walk away because it's too difficult. But the quadrant of unknown unknowns, that is very tricky because you, per definition, don't know how big it is uh, and how important it can be for the case. Yeah, so you try to go deeper into things and you try to move things from unknown unknowns to at least questions in the other quadrants or to something that is actually knowledgeable. Yeah. And how do you use that like practically when you're investing? Do you have some some example? Yeah, so I mean, w- one quite good tell for me is that if I feel that it's very simple and I have a very simple nar- narrative and a simple case for it that is straightforward, it probably means that I have too much into the unknown, unknown area because very few things are that simple. Um, But apart from that, I try to read different reports uh, about the company. I try to read the company's uh, own material, like quarterly reports and annual reports. And I try to talk with people that I respect and know that they know something about the company. And if from all these three sources, uh, as an example, uh, I kind of know everything that are of importance from the discussions and readings, uh, it can be a tell at least, not a certainty, but a tell that the unknown unknown quadrant is relatively small and that I have a handle of it. Uh, But if in those discussions I get a lot of uh, aha moments uh, or surprises and questions that I haven't thought about, uh, that's a very good tell that uh, there is a big quadrant of unknown unknowns and that I should be very, very careful with going forward with the investment. Yeah, it's always good to talk with people and 
this comes back to circle of competence really yeah yeah and i i think you you're really op- i mean with your examples you have in each chapter i think you have a great example here where you i mean i think you frame it as a mistake that uh, you put too much effort into something that turned out to be i mean there turned out to be too many unknown unknowns but at least you didn't make two mistakes that are quite common yeah. <laughs> you, you didn't invest at least exactly exactly <laughs> i think that's a great uh, yeah great thing to take with you uh, because that's something you take up in in the chapter on confirmation bias that if you put too much effort into something then you you actually want to believe that it's true um anchoring is oh, is one of the models that is often brought up as one of the most important ones for investors. And uh, I think, I mean, this really hit me hit me on the head when you brought it up. Um, a normal problem for me and I think for other investors has been that I mean, you, you decide like, okay, I want to buy this stock at price uh, 40. And then uh, it goes down to 41 and you're you're still, I mean, I, I don't want to buy until it's 40. And then you miss out and then you have a five bagger in three years. And yeah, you really blew it. And uh, I think the example you bring up with Chris Saka, the investor in Uber, who actually invested. And then 15 months later, he invested at a 64x valuation. So... I mean that that's a big lesson for for many of us I think. Can you can you maybe describe that situation a bit? Yeah, I mean Chris Saka is really a living legend uh within the field I think. He is more of a venture investor um where he have has been very very successful in finding uh picks as Uber and uh Twitter and many more. So I think he was one of the first investors in Uber where they basically didn't have much uh, at all. They didn't have a product. They had basically a PowerPoint and maybe something else uh, where he invested in a valuation. And because he believed in the team and that uh, there would be a good product market fit. Uh, Obviously, I don't know exactly what his thought process was, but I'm guessing it's along those lines. Uh, And only a few months later... um, it seemed like the team was progressing and the and Uber guys needed a new investment, but at a much higher invest, uh, a much higher valuation. So he decided to invest there again, uh, not regarding that he actually paid maybe 10% of the price or so uh, in his first investment. And he actually participated even in the third round, as you said, uh, at a 64x compared to his first valuation, where he still felt that the progress has been so good and the upside would still be uh, tremendously high. So disregarding that he paid basically 1-2% of his uh, valuation, he still felt it's worth putting more money here uh, at work. And that is so impressive uh, i cannot stress how difficult that has to be i i don't even know if i uh, have had um, i've had one i think uh, 100 bagger but uh, i mean just thinking about investing at the point where you actually paid 64 times less makes my head ache <laughs> <laughs> it's like a reverse sunk cost fallacy yeah exactly exactly uh, I think that has to be one of the most difficult things there is because humans, I think, overall are so bound to anchoring and what 
we think is normalcy and a normal world. I, I must a- ask you on on that hundred bagger you mentioned you had. Did you did you buy? Uh, did you average up in that position? No. Uh, I in in that situation I was very very lucky uh, in one sense. Uh, timing wise. I never think about timing, but I think that the stock actually went up quite soon after uh, a couple of months, maybe three months after my initial investment. Uh, I had a thought that I would put some more money to use there if the stock was going to be still at those levels. Uh, But when it started to go up, uh, if I remember correctly, it kind of went up overnight. So uh, there wasn't much uh, possibility. Uh, of putting much uh, any more money uh, at work there. Too bad. Yeah. 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 Because that's. I mean, typically, what I wanted to get to is that that's typically the biggest mistakes you can do to to not average up in such a position. Yeah. We talk a lot about mistakes of of commission, but not not so much about omission. Which yeah. Is maybe. No. And in that specific case, I mean, I'm very happy that uh, I found the case. I think it was very intellectual stimulating for me to uh, do the case and do the analysis. But it is also one of my biggest mistakes because I think that the the analysis and the process was kind of okay, at least Uh, it held uh, as a case, but I didn't employ uh, any significant amount of money. Uh, We're talking about 0. something percent of the portfolio uh, in a case where I actually believed in a hundred bagger and that is uh, really not smart, to put it lightly. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, by the way, with Chris Saka, do you know if he like uh, increased his uh, ownership when he did those new investments yeah. on higher levels? he actually did. So he took more okay. than his uh, actual uh, percentage stake. Yeah, because that's a, otherwise I could see that, okay, he's just trying to keep his ownership at the same level. So yeah. that's why he keeps investing with a kind of confirmation bias in that way but well that makes it even more impressive yeah definitely um another one that you bring up is survivorship bias and i think uh, here you actually bring up a question to to the readers which i think is really really helpful um i mean survivorship bias in short just means our our tendency to overvalue lessons from from the survivors um as i mean history is usually written by the winners and um of course, there is a lot of luck in in certain situations. It's uh, so even though it the, the the winner only had a ten percent probability at the start, yeah, he or she turned out the the winner, and and we try to learn us a lot from from that situation, even though maybe luck was the most important thing. Um, and the question you bring up is how much of the conclusions from the survivors are sensible to use, and I wanted to to ask you if you have thought more on that after you you wrote, wrote the book yeah i i think about that quite often actually and i still don't have uh, an answer obviously uh, maybe i have some bits and pieces I, I i think it's so difficult because you see on a daily basis that you know company x y or z is the amazon of or netflix of or apple of something uh, just because they have some characteristics that maybe resemble uh, the said companies. Um, I, what I try to do is that I really try to break down what the relationship 
is and when it comes to survivorship bias you know is it a statistical fluke or is it something that has a real scientific or statistical backing combined with a story let's call it a story that actually makes sense um sometimes the numbers could tell a story uh, and it's very simple as we human beings love stories to tell a story that kind of sound like it makes sense um but very few of the stories that i feel that you can read about uh, in uh, the financial media like cnbc etc uh have some real backing. So there are a couple of things that um, I think, or at least I hope, stand true. And for example, you could probably find a lot of survivorship bias in this as well, but like the good culture where individuals can grow, that is something that overall creates value, everything equal. Uh, Decentralization and employees taking ownership, transparency, transparency, agility, business models that create value for customers, um, value and price that they will converge, um, for example. And there are some things in this area where I choose uh, that I believe in based on uh, hopefully facts, uh, at least things that I think are facts and has a story that I personally believe in um, that I try to apply um, so that I can get a better way of thinking about things. Uh, And I think it's a little bit like the circle of competence because there's so much noise on other things that could work and have worked um, for certain companies. But I think I try to remind myself as often as I can that just because it has worked once or twice uh, and just because it worked at this specific time with those regulations in that country doesn't mean in any way that it can be replicable uh, or sorry replicated um, in another part of the world two decades later yeah i I thought a lot when i when i read this chapter i I thought about uh, what jeff bezos had his his three pillars on how to create uh, a great uh, e-commerce business with amazon uh, and he focused on okay what's what's really what will stand the test of time um, consumers will always want a large assortment low prices and good convenience and then i mean he managed to to put most of the effort into into those three pillars and i think that's one of those you you can find that actually has 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 worked really well yeah but of course, it's hard to see that in the in the in the beginning because there are so many other variables that you need to think about. But yeah, exactly. And I mean, the times change, people change, and technology change, regulations change. And uh, maybe another example that I think I've thought about a lot and uh, also made a mistake uh, to think about the replicability too much is like Berkshire Hathaway, the way Warren Buffett. Uh, built Berkshire Hathaway and using the insurance companies with float uh, and how great that business model has been. And uh, obviously that is some survivorship bias in that because uh, in today's world where you have more regulation where you cannot put as much of the float into equities uh, where the interest rate on money is basically zero or sometimes even negative, uh, the float doesn't even contribute. Uh, could actually be uh, of negative value 
And there are other things that have changed as well. And I think it's important to just think about really hard that just because it was good or even great or superb uh, at one time, uh, with the Berkshire Hathaway example or the Amazon example, doesn't mean that it's always like that. So in a way, I mean, you can also relate to human beings, why why humans have been so successful. And at least I, I believe that, uh, I mean, how flexible we are. I mean, we can fit in almost every environment. We can change uh, with new cir- circumstances quite quickly. Maybe that's one of them I, I, I like to think about. So maybe a devil's advocate here on, on this side, but uh, a thought that often pops up in my head, and maybe it's because of my concerns for the environment and this, that situation, but um, I'm thinking how everyone is always so certain that the stock market will be higher in the long-term perspective and simply because there will be more people and GDP will keep growing and then you read in Hawking's book that in 500 years people will stand next to each other on all surface of this planet and no one can ever move. So it's like if we keep growing at the current rate. Um, and you also write this in the book that like without hesitation really that the market will keep going up in the long run in the short term it's also of course uncertain but um and i I understand it's likely and maybe it's not really helpful to think like otherwise you you mentioned the beginning about uh, world war ii and the humanity has been overcoming everything um but isn't there like when we look at these biases like survivorship bias confirmation bias anchoring all of these are really like justifying all the kind of convictions and what has become truths of the stock market that seven to ten percent yearly returns and p ratio of 15 over like because if we look at the market in 200 over 200 years it's a it's a long time period of course for us but it's insanely short for humanity and universe to draw any conclusions it's a big picture question but do you have some thoughts on that yeah that's a great question and uh I mean, it's big and difficult, and obviously I'm not smart enough to have uh, any kind of answer on that. Um, I have, however, put quite a lot of thought into it without coming to a conclusion, uh, other than that, and and this is really survivorship uh, bias at play, as you say. I mean, looking at the rather short history of uh, the stock market, the financial market, and even humanity, Things have been going in the, I have to be careful what to say here, but things have been going in the direction of uh, less poor people and uh, more welfare. And obviously there are other things that have gone maybe in the other direction. Uh, You mentioned environment, maybe risk of uh, nuclear war has uh, obviously increased over the last 200 years. Um, And um, this is maybe where my rationality ends and where almost a spiritual or let's say a religious part comes in where I absolutely have no clue if those systemic risks uh, like the climate change etc will put a collapse to all of the progress that we have had I mean the risk is there uh, I have no clue how big that risk or even the other let's call them black swans events uh, be but the system that we have in place with uh, capitalism uh, together with uh, a free market and democracy 
has shown to work pretty well over the last um, decades, even if that that could be a lot of survivorship bias here. But what I kind of have chosen, um, because I really can't figure out a good other good answer on it, is that I've just chosen to believe that we will together let cap, uh, capital flow to where it is needed in order to also solve these systemic risks or at least maybe postpone them for eternity or at least long enough until someone smarter in another generation can solve it. Um, and if I'm right, hopefully that means that the stock market uh, and welfare overall will be going up over time. Uh, and if I'm wrong, I guess that the value of my portfolio is probably the least of my worries and I don't need to think about that or care about that anyway. <laughs> That's a good answer to a tough question. I think in the same terms, and I guess it comes down to risk aversion, basically. How much do you want to keep in assets that are more sustainable in a way yeah. for yourself for the long term? Going back to the concept of uh, confirmation, confirmation bias, which is uh, arguably another one that's hugely important. And I think you, you had a really good perspective on that. You mentioned uh, the seven sins of confirmation bias, and I, wa- I want you to tell us a little bit about them. Yeah, so uh, confirmation bias is very tricky, I think, because people, uh, I mean, human, human beings have been developed through evolution to be in groups, it's scary to be alone, and therefore it's nice to be confirmed, and the confirmation bias becomes important because we have some kind of uh, DNA programmed part of our brains that wants to be confirmed. Um, and when it comes to uh, when it comes to investing, it doesn't really help that other people confirm what you think or is true. So the framework with the uh, seven deadly sins uh, is basically the process uh, from start to end, uh, where you start with search, where one actively looks for data and information in order to confirm one's initial view, uh, which obviously uh, can lead to very bad decisions. Uh, Secondly, you will have preference. So even if uh, contradicting evidence is found and exists, uh, we tend to prefer the evidence that supports our initial belief so that you don't have this cognitive dissonance. Um, Thirdly, you have the recollection part where uh, somehow it's actually easier to remember the information that supports one's initial belief. It's easier to forget uh, arguments and facts that doesn't support it. Uh, Fourthly, you would have interpretation. So even if I would present, if I'm presented with uh, the same set of data as maybe you two, uh, we would interpret it differently. I would probably interpret a little bit closer to what I believe in uh, in order to confirm what I believe in. And it's not because I want that, it just happens naturally. Uh, And you would interpret in a different way a little bit at least. Um, Then you have framing. So um, you could be using mistaken beliefs to misunderstand what's actually happening in a situation, uh, which is a little bit different to interpretation, but still quite 
similar. Uh, discarding is the sixth sin here, uh, which is about that you explain away or discrediting information that actually does not fit with the belief. So even if you are presented fact, you might think that it's not a fact, it, it's, it's fake news, as a famous guy like to say. <laughs> uh, and the last one is testing. Uh, this is something that I struggle with quite often. So it's kind of like the ostrich putting uh, the head into the sand. So when you're, maybe there's a little part of you thinking that maybe I'm actually not right here. Maybe I should look up some more facts. Maybe I should run this analysis again. There's a much more uh, powerful part of the brain saying, no, let's not do that. Because if you do that, there's a risk that you're wrong. So just don't uh, take a look at it again. Uh, so when it comes to investing, uh, the important part over time at least is to uh, have a good output and uh, being right in the analysis, which hopefully leads to a, a good output. So even if one would fall victim for the deadly sins over time, uh, it probably means that one has less cognitive dissonance and maybe feels better about one's decisions on a day-to-day -day basis by not challenging them. But I am a strong believer in that that would result in worse results uh, over time. Yeah, and I think what, what the point with the seven sins really brings home is um, that it's it's really dangerous in all aspects of the process of yeah. thinking and, and of course for investing. Uh, how did you come up with this list? I think it becomes quite easy if you make as many mistakes as I do. Um, <laughs> and when I thought about the list of mistakes that I did, it became quite obvious for me that I didn't make one mistake when it com came to confirmation bias during one part of the process, but rather I felt like the ostrich with the sa uh, head in the sand from beginning to the end. And I felt that during the analysis, there were so many pieces in the process where I should have done differently, but I really wanted to be right. I really wanted the fact or people to confirm that I was right. And uh, by breaking that down, uh, I came up with the seven, let's call it the seven step process or the seven deadly sins, uh, where I could have had checkpoints somehow uh, that would help me at least partly um, out of my problems. And you mentioned uh, that confirmation bias is the most dangerous of all, um, but I don't want to put you, I mean, on the spot there because maybe you have changed your mind. So <laughs> do you still believe it's the dangerous one and, and why? Uh, I actually still believe that and the reason I believe that is that at least for me the other mental models that I have written about in a book are kind of one-off decisions. Uh, circle of competence as, a, as an example. You kind of just need to decide is this something that is within or outside the boundaries of my circle of competence and if after that decision you can just move along based on uh, what decision you took. Uh, when it comes to confirmation bias and the process and the seven deadly sins, as you heard uh, me talk about about the list, it's really with you from the beginning to the end. So you can't take one decision. You have to kind of guard yourself 
against it all the time during the whole investment process, which could extend from first finding information before you invest, which could be years before the investment. And if you are a long-term shareholder um, and own the stock for many years, uh, that's something that you need to live with and guard yourself against maybe for years or decades um, all the time, which is something that uh, I think is difficult. And also, it really goes against human nature. Once again, circle of competence, it's relatively sim- easier to uh, to agree if it's inside or outside. But confirmation bias is really that the best investors, I believe, uh, are people that challenge themselves all the time and in in the belief that they have. And this is very inhumane almost uh, because we like to be confirmed. We like that uh, to feel at ease. And having uh, a holding in a company and all the time asking yourself the question, is this the right decision, uh, is really difficult. Doesn't it come down to emotions, actually? Yes. I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, um, And we know many successful investors who are not very emotional people and they can kind of keep it separate from themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, and another aspect of it is, um, I mean, as, as, with, as with a lot of tools and, and, uh, and thoughts, I mean, it's mostly a negative, but it's in one way could be a, a positive to hold your, I mean, conviction to really, I mean, to really hold a hundred bagger f- over time. I know Munger says about marriage to keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards, which is a reference to that. Um, but as you mentioned, I mean, how, how do you balance the the uh, sort of the good parts of, of it, of, of keeping your conviction with falling in the trap? That's really a great question. And uh, when when I've figured out how to get a few hundred baggers, I can maybe come back and tell you the answer. Uh, but I, I try to think um, as Munger because he's obviously a very smart person. Um, and as you said, one of his strengths is probably that he's so rational and are able to really control the feelings and uh, put the feelings uh, as something inferior to the logic, which is very difficult. Um, obviously, you want your team to win. Uh, so there's a lot of confirmation bias playing in all the time. But I try to read opinions from the other side. Uh, I try to discuss with people uh, sometime that I know or think that they know a lot about the companies. Uh, I try to remove emotions from the cases as often as possible. So for example, uh, we have an ironclad rule that says that uh, after finding a case and deciding that we want to buy it, we are not able to buy it within a month uh, because after that, maybe some emotions uh, will fade away. Um, but once per year, at least, we try to think about the companies that I have in my uh, listed portfolio and just really challenge that uh, holding should I sell or should I buy? And there's no hold in my way of thinking. 
but I only do that once per year because maybe I, I hope it's because uh, the quote of uh, Charlie Munger there, but it's also a lot because it's really painful to look at uh, your own team and holdings in with such scrutiny uh, more often, at least for me. Right, and we're really moving into your current work position position at uh, Technion, uh, where you are an investment officer, and uh, Technion is a Swedish serial acquirer. So, so first of all, what what is that for those who don't know serial acquirer yeah. concept? So that's uh, something that's quite special in Sweden, I believe. But uh, basically, I think there are four, maybe four characteristics that uh, would uh, give a good tell of its if it's a serial acquirer or not. Uh, one is that the primary source of growth is through acquisition rather than organic growth. Uh, secondly, the, the acquisitions are relatively many, but small in size and of unlisted private companies. Uh, they focus on rather stable companies that are profitable uh, rather than going into venture capital uh, or turnarounds. And fourthly, uh, I think a common thread is that uh, they tend to have a eternal uh, holding period, uh, i.e. not selling the companies um, after a holding period of, say, five, seven years that private equity companies usually do. Yeah, truly a buy and hold strategy. Yes. And um, what about Technion? What kind of company is that? So Technion is uh, a serial acquirer as well. Uh, and... Uh, I think what is very different with us, uh, obviously I haven't worked with any of the others, so uh, this is kind of an outside view as well. Uh, but there has been quite a lot of uh, popular, let's call it popular rhetoric regarding how um, companies should be run. Uh, it has been very popular to talk about decentralization, full ownership, flexibility, agility, etc. I think for some companies they're doing this really well and they really walk the talk. And I would say that Technion absolutely is one of those where we, these are not pretty words uh, on the wall, but it's something that we truly value and do at an extreme almost. Um, And I think there are maybe two things that I think uh, keeps us apart from uh, the rest. One is the culture that I've been uh, talking a little bit about, um, where we really uh, value and treasure entrepreneurship and true decentralization. And we have an uncompromisable focus on individuals. Um, We are are not at all interested in growing a big forest. Uh, We are kind of arborists that pick out and cultivate the greatest oak, the finest maple, uh, the greatest pine, etc. Uh, and that focus on individuals also means that we kind of know the name of all, uh, say, 350 people in the organization. And we have a culture that that make people feel included. And especially uh, the new uh, entrepreneurs that have been selling their companies, uh, they tend to forget even that they have sold their companies and they keep working in the same way as before. Um, but now they have um, more friends. Um, 
Secondly, what we try to do at Technion is that we uh, act with great discipline when it comes to capital allocation. We, we are really relentless on that. Um, I think we also have the highest cash adjust, adjusted return on equity among uh, all the serial acquirers. In Sweden? In Sweden, yes. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Uh, we do not compromise at all on what we pay uh, and thereby the return on equity based on growth. But that also means that in times where there is a lot of uh, capital, there's an abundance of capital right now, uh, we might not be the company that uh, are growing the fastest or buying the most amount of companies, um, but rather being very, very disciplined with the capital that we have. And what is that valuation approach? So we have a valuation approach that uh, basically stems out from a, a discounted cash flow, but with some adjustments. So very simplistically, uh, we try to get back our money uh, on a cash basis within five years. That's basically the valuation approach that we have had uh, since the founding of Technion in 2006. And we've kept that uh, until now and will continue to um, forever. Right. And how do you work with, uh, with the acquisitions? Uh, are you processing in auctions or how do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, so uh, Technion has had a history of sometimes participating in auctions. Uh, buying unlisted companies have sometimes been quite unsexy where there have been very few potential buyers. And in those cases, in those times, we have been participating in some processes. But right now, where uh, the interest has gone up a lot, uh, we have chosen to uh, remove ourselves from all kind of structured processes because uh, one, obviously, in those processes, uh, you get uh, the winner's curse, uh, i.e. you pay top dollar, uh, the most money out of all potential buyers in, in order to get the company. But more importantly, actually, it's not only about the money per se. We want uh, entrepreneurs to join us because they and we together believe that we are the best fit for their companies. And I mean, to be clear, we are absolutely not the best home for all kind of unlisted companies or for all personality types, but we want to find that match. And those that only want to get the highest amount of uh, dollar amount for their company, I mean, I, I understand that perfectly, but that is not the kind of culture uh, and individuals that would be a perfect fit with Technion. Uh, so nowadays we actually uh, only do our own approaching of companies where we find and uh, search for companies that we believe have a good uh, future and we call them and ask if they would like to be part of our Technion family. Uh, and sometimes they say yes. From reading uh, your annual reports and also your quarterly reports, I can see that you you clone what what uh, Warren Buffett uh, did of uh, actually, um, I mean, um, making public that you want um, entrepreneurs to call you with prospects. Yep. Has that has that paid off so far? Actually, it has. Uh I mean, we, right now we haven't closed any deal uh, based on those 
uh, free ads. But we have uh, gotten a few cases, both from entrepreneurs that have read it and thought it was interesting, and where uh, Johan and I have been visiting a few of them. Johan is the CEO, right? Yes, thank you. Johan Stjerne. Founder and CEO. Uh, uh, but we have also received a few cases from uh, people that have been investing uh, in Technion, maybe just a few shares, some of them a little bit more, that feel and are rooting for their home team. And uh, I mean, what better way is it uh, to help yourself win by helping your team to recruit new entrepreneurs? Uh, I mean, this will most likely within the clear, uh, near future never be our biggest inflow of uh, great cases, but it's free and it's fun, and it has generated something, so we'll probably keep doing that. It's funny that you bring that up, because that's exactly how I think uh, some some deals Buffett have done have been through their own investors who have I mean, looked looked at their networks. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's it seems to work well, but uh, yeah, you have to be a certain type of company for that to work, I think. Yeah. Uh, just going back to, I mean, you have, you have been at Technion, Technion for a while, but not for too long. Um, when did you when did you join the company, and how how do you spend a typical day? So I joined the company at the beginning of the year, so I'm fast approaching the one year uh, milestone. Uh, and time really flies fast when you have fun, and we have so much fun. I think I have the best job in the world, uh, no disrespect to you, but uh, <laughs> I think I have a little bit more fun. I mean, there is the boring answer is that there is no typical day, and I'm a person that probably have a lot of uh, letter combinations as diagnosis, so I would never be able to live in a situation where uh, there would be you know, very structured typical days. But um, I think there are maybe two types of days. Uh, One type of day is a home day where I uh, run to the office uh, in the morning, maybe at 6.30 or so, and uh, try to look and think and discuss companies with uh, uh, my great colleagues and uh, try to contact new potential sellers, uh, write indications, valuations, keep the ongoing processes uh, with diligence, etc. ongoing, and uh, maybe support uh, our current companies with some business development work. Um, So it can be really everything, but mostly focused on the acquisition uh, pipeline, so to say. Um, And we have always different companies in different stages, so um, that will make the days look very different. And then I probably run home and leave uh, office before uh, six and reflect about the day. Um, the other kind of day or group of day uh, that I have is that maybe, let's say, twice a week, uh, I usually run to the train station uh, together with uh, Johan, the CEO, and we either take the train or um, Holland Express to take a flight to meet uh, potential sellers uh, at their home turf 
in order to uh, learn more about them, their journey, and what has made them and the company so successful. And obviously, uh, also very transparently telling them who we are and uh, why it could be interesting to be part of our family. Um, and those are, I think, the most fun days because there are so many great companies here in Sweden that you have never ever thought about or uh, even thought could exist. Uh, that really is the backbone and makes the society work behind all of these um, big companies that you kind of see in the news uh, on an everyday basis. And it's, uh, I guess the second type of day is a bit more rare than the first one or? I think the second type of day is maybe, I would say on average, maybe twice a week. So we meet quite a lot of different companies. Um, and But as I said before, we are uh, very disciplined when it comes to uh, valuation. Uh, so obviously not all meetings uh, lead to uh, a actual deal. And uh, we also approach these companies ourselves. So it's not like these entrepreneurs uh, have been thinking too much about selling and they sometimes are not ready, or I would say uh, most of the times they are not ready to sell now. But uh, starting up that process uh, is obviously the first step in a potential acquisition. And um, I mean, Johan as a ultra runner is famous for being very, very long-term focused. And that has put, uh, that has really shown in the Technion culture as well, where I think our record is that we uh, acquired a company last year, a great company called Injab, uh, where the first meeting until the deal closed took around nine years. So some of the traveling we're doing now probably would bear fruit in you know, the years to come, while sometimes it can be really quick uh, where everything and all the stars are aligned. It could maybe just take three, four weeks, but uh, we are in no hurry. Long answer to your question, but uh, maybe <laughs> oh, it was a good a answer. I mean, <laughs> and it really, I mean, it's it's a lot about delayed gratification. So you you, uh, I mean, you you don't need to expect a payout a, no. a payout early. But you always try to meet the companies in person. Absolutely. Yeah, and see their production or so on. Yeah. So for us, because we focus so much on the individuals and culture, we do not use consultants. Uh, we try to keep lawyer firms uh, away uh, whenever possible. And so it's really a dealing between, it's really a mano a mano, as you would say, uh, <laughs> where we try to sit down with the person and be naked in a maybe literal sense. <laughs> and uh, so we can show each other uh, where we stand and what we think about. And the focus is really on the quality aspects. Obviously we do the due diligence on the financial side as well, but that is uh, more uh, as an insurance that everything is as we thought and is very secondary to um, the feeling uh, we get from the individuals and the culture. You know, when we walk around there in production, uh, are people smiling? Do they feel that they belong to a group? Uh, those are things that we uh, really look for and treasure in our acquisitions. I wanted to ask you if um, 
if the toolbox have uh, already helped you in uh, buying private companies i mean you wrote the book as a public investor but now you you have the chance to use it as a as a private investor so to speak of buying private companies yeah so uh i hope so is my answer i guess um i try to flicker through uh my book uh, especially the bullets in the end of each chapter which is uh, which are reminders to myself uh how to not make the same mistakes um so it doesn't become a paper product so uh risk is probably something that i use quite a lot in my job uh today um risk can be defined probably in you know hundreds of ways and yeah it was one of the question i really wanted to ask you uh, and it's it's good that you bring it up um if i can just say i mean i would say that the normal ways is either you you measure it with volatility yeah or you measure it with uh, i mean many value investors i've heard have have said that it's the i mean probability of losing money or risk of losing money and you have a, a third definition which is more subjective than the other two yeah exactly so in my world uh for me there has to be a, an aim or a goal in order to be a, uh, for a risk to exist so if my aim is to for example run a 10k race under 40 minutes uh the risk is not so the risk would be to not be able to do that so the risk is always in relation to something uh, and at technium for example we have uh, different financial goals and i think the most important one is that we will try to uh, double our uh, earnings per share over a very long period but we'll do it uh, on average every uh, five years or so and which means that you know in 50 years or so we'll do a thousand fold uh so that's the risk i try to think about and in uh acquiring companies instead of thinking about fluctuations there are some unlisted companies private companies uh, as well as uh, listed companies that have a lot of fluctuation in their financials from quarter to quarter or maybe year over year and uh, overall fluctuation is something that is not loved by the investor community um people overall like a smooth journey but because we are uh, a serial acquirer um all of the companies that we acquire would become a very essential part an important part of the whole group but none of them would be big enough to uh, be able to make or break the group so risk for example here is very interesting so i love companies that have certain fluctuation because other investors do not like to buy them prices overall are a bit lower but as long as the risks or actually the fluctuations here uh, are not correlated with the other companies that we have uh, it doesn't uh, it doesn't really matter for us if we have uh, a number of companies that fluctuate quarter to quarter yeah, as uh, long as they come back as long as they come back and as long as they are uncorrelated um, it also only means that we get them at a lower price and i also think that in a lot of cases the fluctuations are more on the accounting side uh, than on a fundamental side um, which i think is quite important to also uh, to uh, think about the difference there yeah definitely and 
maybe it's more about uncertainty than than actual risk. Exactly. Yeah. And something I thought about is that you mentioned these kind of simplified ways of thinking. You really try to make it easy, like with a how to get your money back in five years and but then on the other hand in the book you mentioned that you do DCFs and you do the Monte Carlo analysis and which are really like quite heavy valuation tools like how much do you use those kind of uh, help in your work I mean yeah so in my work uh, I absolutely do DCFs Um, we have a little bit of different spin in it because risk or actually the risk adjusted uh, discount rate uh, would be a little bit different in our world compared to as one would think maybe uh, when purchasing listed companies. But basically we use DCFs and value companies and try to figure out uh, a price that would equal uh, getting back our free cash flow uh, on a five year basis. So that's uh, kind of the ironclad uh, rule that we use for valuation um, and using DCFs there. Um, Monte Carlo is not something that I or we use in looking at uh, private acquisitions. Um, I think Monte Carlos are a great tool for certain aspects. Um, and it's great when there's a lot of uncertainty that I think is very difficult to know about. Like it's very difficult to know if the growth rate is going to be two, three, four, or six percent. Maybe it's very difficult to know if the margins are going to be six, eight, ten, or twelve percent. And I think Monte Carlo is better used for companies where one has less control, typically uh, a listed company. But for us, because we actually acquire 100% of the company, we know the people, we actually know the business plan, we know or think that we know uh, what we can control, uh, the Monte Carlo becomes uh, a tool that wouldn't be as relevant because like the margin, for example, we would in most cases be able to actually almost choose the margin based on pricing and cost. Obviously, it's not that easy, but uh, it it is something that we very clearly can influence, and therefore um, Monte Carlo wouldn't make as much sense because it's more built for things that you cannot control, in my opinion. So actually, when you see the situation where, oh, here it would be good to use the Monte Carlo analysis, then you should avoid it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a very, good way to very use good it. Put. Yeah. So Daniel, this has been a, a fascinating discussion and uh, we really look forward to see if uh, if Technion can can deliver the 1000x that you mentioned over over the really, really long term. It I hope so a, too. Yeah, it would be a great story. We, of course, being a book, book uh, podcast, we are always interested to hear um, which books um, you uh, are reading right now and what uh, maybe we can start with uh, the books that have been the main inspiration for you. There's three authors that have been very, very important to me, um, both maybe in the investing career, but maybe even more importantly, uh, like living my life uh, outside of investing. Um, so the first one would be uh, Warren Buffett's 
uh, annual letters to shareholders. It's not really a book, but uh, I think if you put them together, it would be quite a thick book. Um, I think that those letters together uh, are better than any MBA in the world, where he explains very well uh, his approach to capital allocation, leadership, and much other things that uh, I think are very important. Secondly, there's this guy called Nassim Taleb, uh, who has written quite a lot of books about risk, among others, but a lot about challenging conventional wisdom and uh, be more independent as a thinker. And um, those books, I think, are well worth uh, a read. And thirdly, it's actually a, a fictional uh, book, which is called Before the Coffee Gets Cold, written by a guy called... Toshikasu Kawagushi, or however that is pronounced, uh, which is a very philosophical book about uh, how to live a happier life. If there's anything that I think is more important than investing, it's probably uh, how to be happy in life. So that's a, a recommendation from my side. And is there any book that you would like to exist? I would love if there was a book, maybe there is, uh, a book about good books with practical advices. Um, so kind of an index of good books. There are so many books out there, and I think a lot of them are good, but it would be just so great uh, if someone could just summarize the ones that actually work with practical advices. In a certain topic? Uh, investing would be great. Uh, right. Becoming happy is also nice. <laughs> True. Investing by the books has done a bit of that work, but uh, maybe there's someone to compile a big big index like that. And uh, for yourself, do you want to write another book with the, the rest of the mental models you didn't fit in this one? Uh, I think for now I'm quite happy with uh, the writing part. Um, maybe one day when we feel that Technion can look back on a 50-year journey and has uh, made maybe a thousand X or more, uh, it would be fun to write about that journey. Great, look forward to that. And um, before we finish up, do you have something more you want to add? I think that you guys are doing a really good job. And uh, I think I'm really honored to be part of your podcast. And uh, I've learned a lot from all the guests that you uh, have brought here. So well done. Thanks. Uh, that's great. And uh, for, for those who want to buy the, the book, An Investment Thinking Toolbox, where can they find the, find it? So in Sweden, uh, you can find them uh, at Adlibris Bokus, Akademik Bokhanden and the other bookstores. Uh, I think it should be able to be bought at Amazon as well. Good. And uh, for those who want to follow you, how can they do that? Uh, I'm not so public on the social media space, but uh, you can probably find me on LinkedIn. Uh, or otherwise, I think following Technion would be indirectly following me as well. Thank you so much, Daniel. This has been uh, this has been great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. You can follow us on Twitter at ib underscore redeye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve the podcast, we really appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.sc. For the sound engineering of this podcast, we thank Gustav Tesch 
and for this editing, Carl Berryholtz. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.